You're listening to the IC interviews from the Investors Chronicle, and today our guest is Derek Leatherdale, who for more than a decade worked at HSBC, where he was based in the bank's government affairs division and set up the internal geopolitical risk team. He is currently a risk consultant at GRI Strategies, advising companies on geopolitical volatility. Derek, thanks very much for joining me. I wanted to start very simply. Can you briefly explain what people like you mean when they talk about geopolitical risk and more specifically, what all of this means for ordinary investors? Uh, thanks very much, Alex, for the introduction and, and delighted to, to join you. Um, yes. Um, so, so I suppose um, one way of thinking about geopolitical risk is that it was a, it, it's sort of a thing, or people have often associated it in the past. It's a thing that sort of matters, and is is undertaken by governments. It's about intergovernmental relations, um, and I think for a long time, and certainly in the period immediately after the end of the Cold War, geopolitics was sort of thought of as something that was distinct and separate from business and business activity and global business activity. Um, uh, th- that, I think, started to change a number of years ago. And one of the reasons why I set up HSBC's Geopolitical Risk Unit was because it was becoming apparent that geopolitics in various ways um, uh, was starting to touch on uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the operations of, of HSBC globally. Um, it was affecting the bank in different ways sometimes through um, what what is now described as financial risk um, uh, and equally sometimes through what is now described as non-financial risk. But there, there were various touch points and various impacts. Uh, and that equally that the, the broader geopolitical environment was one in which um, uh, there, there was the, the possibility of developments, um, particularly in HSBC's case, uh, in relation to the US-China relationship that could potentially throw up some some awkward strategic dilemmas for HSBC. Um, coming to the second part of your question, you know, what, what does this all mean for investors? Uh, uh, quite a number of things. But broadly, I mean, from an investment point of view, I think I would highlight two or three um, uh, sort of quick high-level themes. One is that um, geopolitics uh, is um, uh, becoming more volatile, not less. That was happening before COVID, but but COVID will certainly accelerate many of the uh, the sort of structural instabilities in the international political order. And it follows, I think, that, that an increasing number of firms who operate globally in whatever sector um, uh, will start to feel the impacts uh, of that volatility. Um, uh, and that's sort of in very broad terms something that, that investors will need to be aware of. It, it sort of equally follows from that that there will be some sectors which will be more effective than, than others. So the obvious one, I think, uh, that, that people were pointing to even before COVID was uh, technology uh, and, the, and the possibility of um, US-China developments affecting the way uh, uh, technology companies are able to operate. And you know, from an investment point of view, you know, that would have consequences for uh, uh, stocks, uh, stock selection, um, and and um, more broadly across sort of asset class um, diversification. Uh, but equally, I think there are other sectors where there will be uh, impacts in future. 
as well as I think perhaps in a more sort of classic sense, the possibility of greater levels of general market volatility um, that, that investors, I think, will now have to sort of, as it were, get used to and aim off for as a result of geopolitics. Yeah. So I suppose there's the there's the sectoral view, isn't there? And then there's also the market reaction yeah. view to, yeah. to, to geopolitics. Um, so just I thought it was really interesting, just just to sort of track back a little bit to what you, you, you were saying about the, I suppose, the broader framework of how we see geopolitics um, affecting both markets and the world. I suppose to many, the last four decades has been characterised by as an era of, of untrammeled growth, really, in what could roughly be termed global finance, I suppose, in which investors mm-hmm. have increasingly instantaneous and broad access to uh, different asset classes and markets around the world. And where at the same time and facilitating that, we've got large financial groups with presence across all continents able to do very complex transactional uh, transactions around the world and helping uh, blue chips particularly in the West, to expand their, you know, expand their horizon anywhere. Should we, I suppose this is tied to a question around globalisation partly, but from a geopolitical risk perspective, should we expect this trend to end or is it going to continue at a slower pace in the coming decades, do you feel? Um, I, I suspect it, it will. Um, the, the, the pace of globalization and the globalization of economic and financial activity would probably slow broadly, but I would expect that to be somewhat uneven um, uh, and that there may be uh, some geographies and some areas where where um, a, a deceleration, if you like, is, is more pronounced. Um, but I would uh, uh, sort of add this point that that geopolitics do not necessarily represent an insuperable barrier uh, to companies operating um, uh, in the way that they have. But that probably the trick here is for those companies that, that wish to continue to operate business models on a global basis need to get better. They need to get smarter at anticipating uh, geopolitical uh, sort of pain points, if you like, uh, and, and need to get better at thinking through in advance how to respond to those uh, and how to navigate those. And, and tying this back to an investor perspective, I think one of the other things that, that the investment community will need to think about doing is uh, being able more effectively to interrogate in invested companies on how they are approaching uh, the, the, the new geopolitical environment in which we find ourselves. Yeah, and I, I suppose, um, I mean, for me, uh, from from a sort of investor framework perspective, one of one of the really important aspects of how I suppose companies communicate or fail to communicate um, their thinking around geopolitics is the an issue, you know, issues around timing and and uh, and, and sort of timeframes because. You know, in the abstract, I think it's easy to understand how, for example, geopolitical risk might have a, a direct impact impact on some market prices like to take an example of the past couple of years we've seen huge swings in oil prices related to mm-hmm. you know either brinksmanship between iran and the us or then market control battles between russia and saudi arabia and then before that and i suppose it's not gone away is that the trade war between the us and, and china which had you know large immediate effects on many commodities um but if you know if if you're an airline, for example, or a shipping business, those you know those are the sort of geopolitical currents you you have to live on. And if you're so long as you're a company doing business 
in or with a specific country, that is presumably a, a risk-based calculation which you can you can all price in or hedge against. But for the, it seems to me there's a more important question for investors about how fast geopolitical risks are, are liable to to emerge. Is is that a is that a useful way of of, of thinking? think about things more generally aside from the specific spikes in volatility that is part of is part of you know global affairs anyway um, the short answer i think is is yes so so one of the the features of the geopolitical landscape in which we find ourselves i I think perhaps uh, underpinned by for instance the emergence of social media and new technology is that that geopolitics sort of as it were happens faster um, uh, than, than perhaps it used to 20 or 30 years ago uh, or, or longer um, uh, and, and that um, issues uh, can, can arise and uh, uh, sort of unpredictable actions by uh, different capitals um, or different political figures uh, can happen with, with probably less notice um, uh, than, than might have been the case um, uh, decades ago, uh, for me, the conclusion from that point is um, is that it's it's ever more important that that uh, companies operating globally in whatever sector uh, try to think more actively in advance about uh, how they can preserve value um, and value for for shareholders um, uh, in an environment of, if you like, not only higher volatility. Um, uh, but also higher volatility that happens more quickly. Um, in a sense, the, the point about the timing and the tempo of this is that it makes it more important, not less, for companies to uh, to anticipate some of these issues, even if in anticipation you can't anticipate perfectly what may happen. It is still possible to uh, think through uh, the broad currents and put in place some preparations and some, um, in, in, in the kind of jargon of this stuff, you know, put in place the right kind of risk management and risk mitigation. Yeah, and and I would say investment uh, managers should be doing the same. You know, that they've got their own uh, uh, risk management infrastructures, uh, and they could and they should be using that more effectively on this agenda. I suppose. I suppose the, the question there is: is you can prepare for things, but is there is there actually anything that? Um, uh, companies, and let's take for example companies of real scale with the ability to do this, with you know, with mm. uh, lobbying power, for example. Can they actually can they proactively manage geopolitical risk? In the in, do, do you think in the you know in in twenty twenty, i.e., are there channels for them to, I suppose, lobby on you know lobby governments directly to um to to sort of bend you know bend the arc of whatever's coming next their way. Um, yes and no. There are certainly channels, and um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I spent several years um, working in HSBC's Group Government Affairs function. Um, uh, I think broadly there are some things which large companies can lobby on and lobby on quite effectively. Typically, sort of questions here of economic policy, of domestic economic policy, or or domestic regulation. Uh, on the regulatory front, um, you know, a, a number of uh, well, large companies generally also try and lobby at the international standard setting level. The problem with geopolitics is that it's less prone and, and governments in general are less likely to listen to lobbying when it comes to questions of what they perceive to be national security. 
um, uh, and and it, it, sometimes actually the dynamic works the other way around, as we've seen in in recent days with HSBC. You know, it it would appear from the media reporting that um, uh, that um, HSBC, uh, as it were, was expected to um, uh, indicate a degree of support for Beijing's wish to extend the national security law to Hong Kong, um, and that's not the kind of thing typically that you can you can l- lobby against as a large company because it's. It's just such a sensitive area of, of policymaking and governments. I think the other thing around, um, you know, the, the lobbying question and, and bending the arc is um, typically lobbying teams in large companies are um, recruited from um, uh, the domestic markets in, in which that particular business unit may be located. So, for instance, in the U.S., uh, there is a very active lobbying scene um, by almost all major corporates across almost all sectors. But typically, those lobbyists will be uh, from the U.S. political system or acquainted with the U.S. political system. Their ability to go and lobby in Beijing is limited, going on non-existent. There's a, sto- a sort of a strong national uh, bias, if you like, to the extent to which lobbying can can have an impact. Um, and and that you know all of that it presupposes that that lobbying is the only mitigant that firms can put in place. Actually, I think, and in my experience, the more effective mitigants um, come through uh, internal activity that, for instance, would seek to understand how a geopolitical scenario might affect the balance sheet uh, in a in a um, in a particular business unit. Uh, and then thinking about what can be done um, should the scenario materialise to ensure that the balance sheet is is less affected, um, or in banking terms, you know, banks can think about whether they need to change um, the structure of their cl- their corporate client books away from affected sectors um, and firms in affected sectors, or towards um, uh, towards firms that they think might benefit from. Uh, some of the geopolitical uh, volatility that uh, is is now apparent. So, so um, you know, broadly, I think there's there's much more on the what what internal risk management and mitigation can be done um, uh, to 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 forestall the impacts of geopolitical volatility um, against the argument that says we can lobby our way out of this. Well, that's really really interesting. Though. I suppose you know to take the Converse, and I suppose at, at the plural of um, anecdote is not is not uh, data or reality. The uh, interesting to note the reports in the Telegraph um, uh, this weekend about HSBC again, um, uh, apparently lobbying uh, the government uh, on behalf of uh, Huawei and uh, over the five G matter, which I thought was was another interesting spin in the um, you know the recent tale for HSBC. But, yeah. Absolutely, a fascinating. I, I saw those reports too. Yeah, so I mean, maybe just staying with that, um, the 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 US China uh, uh, theme or cleavage, because it's, I suppose, in geopolitical terms, it's it's going to be at the top of of uh, of the, I suppose, the 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 risk agenda for many large companies and 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 how investors think about um, geopolitical risk more generally. Um, so, I mean, some people think we're on the brink or may, you know, may already be in a new kind of Cold War between the US and China. And uh, I, I, I mean, you mentioned at the top that COVID-19 you know, has the capacity to 
you know, potentially accelerate this and other geopolitical risks um, at the moment. So, I mean, specifically, if we are in an increasingly fraught, um, you know, uh, polarised world with, with the, the US and China, the two, two great powers, what does that, that geopolitical risk involved in, in all of that mean for your average blue chip company with either global ambitions or a multi-continental mm. presence? And I suppose specifically thinking about UK companies and you know european companies and, and uk investors where do they fit into this worldview because in many senses you know you're, you're you're caught between these two poles yeah i think that's probably right i mean to the first point that you raised alex are we are we already in or on the verge of a new kind of cold war uh, with capital c capital w um uh, i i'm personally i'm not sure that's uh, um, that is a more semantic than 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 um, a sort of uh, 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 or perhaps a more theoretical discussion that doesn't necessarily help advance kind of practical realities. Um, I think it's just probably the key point is that that given how the uh, that if you like the China narrative is playing out in the U.S. amongst both uh, the the political. Um, um, uh, uh, or amongst political figures in the US and amongst public opinion, I think it's it's inconceivable that um, the US will will come to a, a, a more relaxed posture on China um, anytime soon. And that's really, I think, regardless of who wins the presidential election in November. Um, uh, and, and you know, you can sort of drill into that in other ways. You know, Trump is, I think. Going to campaign hard on a on an even more stridently anti-China narrative um, because it's it's one of the things that he would regard as um, helping him um, uh, try and overcome um, what are at the moment not great um, uh, polls for him and his prospects. Um, but equally, I think on the on the Chinese side, there is it would appear there is an emerging sense that that now is the time. Um, to start challenging uh, uh, the U.S. in in a perhaps a slightly more overt way um, than had been the case hitherto, um, and and there may be a mixture of reasons for that. So, so broadly speaking, I think the the point here is that whether it's a cold war, or not a cold war, or, um, uh, or or whatever other label, um, I think we we are moving into a phase of more intense U.S.-China uh, competition, more in- intense U.S.-China mistrust. Um, um, and that, that will play out across a number of issues as we've seen it play out in respect of Hong Kong over the last sort of 10 days or so with uh, the U.S. declaration that or the U.S. State Department's um, uh, declaration that, that in their view, uh, China is no longer upholding the, the one country, two systems uh, approach. Um, but, but there are a myriad of other you know, possible um, sort of interfaces of tension in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and military activity that goes on in, uh, in, in both of those um, theatres, uh, as well as in things like, um, you know, in particular industry sectors. So Huawei is the obvious one, you know, tech, comms, uh, and all of that. What does that mean for UK businesses and UK investors? Um, I, I think in part it means that if they are aiming to uh, operate uh, in a way that sort of cuts across those divisions, um, then at the very least, they need to be pretty savvy about, um, uh, A, what that external risk environment looks like and how it's evolving, um, uh, and B, need to think through what possible impacts there might be uh, 
if that tension gets worse. Um, uh, and um, on the back of that, then perhaps think about what sort of, if you like, um, mitigation or what contingency planning uh, they would need to have in place. I think there's a sort of a, a more detailed set of considerations for investors, um, uh, particularly where they're, they're investing across asset classes, across geographies, across different types of industry sectors. Um, the way the way investment managers use their their existing risk infrastructure to manage this, I think, will be really key to preserving value um, and certainly minimising, if you like, the hit from any uh, from any future market volatility. I, I, I know, I know. I'm conscious you're not uh, an investment manager, Derek. But um, I, I suppose the, que- uh, the follow-up question here would be: Is there, you know, investors almost in a slightly better position in that, assuming the investment channels through which they are able to invest offer exposure to both, um, uh, both a sort of a, a, a China-dominated uh, 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 you know, sector or e- economy, um, uh, and and also uh, a US one that they are able to, in a sense, hedge their hedge their bets against these two worlds. Where actually, the reality for some companies in the in the coming decade may be they're having to to actually pick a side in those mitigation efforts that you mentioned. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, I mean, in a sense, that's the value of from an asset management or investment management point of view. That's the, the value of diversification. That, that you don't have to put all of your eggs in one basket, uh, and you can maybe balance off risk in different parts of the of one's portfolio. Um, it, it, it may be a bit more complicated than that. Um, uh, I, I uh, think that the US are considering measures that would potentially uh, circumscribe the ability of US asset managers uh, to invest in um, uh, some Chinese uh, economic sectors and firms. Um, uh, I think there are also some consideration is being given to uh, measures that would potentially reduce the number of Chinese firms that list on U.S. markets. Um, and I could see that kind of logic uh, being extended to, if not directly or in as intense a way, that kind of logic being extended either sort of de facto or, or de jure to other Western capitals and the way investment practices um, uh, are um, are allowed to operate. So I could, I could, you know, I think there's a sort of a strain of actually governments, uh, you know, in this new era, governments, but particularly the US, may actually take active measures that that circumscribe what what asset managers can do uh, in respect of trying to invest both sides of of this device. Um, uh, and, and um, you know, in that sense, it it may it may become very difficult to try and you know try and play both sides of the fence, or or at least more difficult. Um, but again, I think that's where the value of from an investment management point of view, the value of diversification, the value of of being able to um, to to um, operate across asset classes, across geographies, is is probably right. And there's also that point that I think there are some opportunities. You know, there will be companies who who can actually uh, thrive in this environment. You know, the, the the cliche that people often mention, but I still think it's right, is that there will be companies that that um, uh, that are able to help firms relocate their supply chain. Um, so where where a large firm, say a tech firm, has got it got a supply chain that starts in China and ends in the US, 
you know that may cease to become tenable um, uh, in in this sort of new era. So the firm in question may look to relocate the start of their supply chain to Vietnam, for instance. Um, and and I think there are opportunities for um, organisations that can help them do that. Like for instance, some banks will be able to profit from that move. Interesting stuff. So potentially there is a role for uh, for finance and, and logistics uh, across this um, yeah, it, across exactly. this troubling troubling new world. Um, Derek, let's let's leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. It was really really good to speak to you as ever. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.